everybody. Uh, I'm Lori Podvesker from Include NYC. Uh, I am first and foremost a parent of a 15-year-old with developmental disabilities who attends a District 75 high school program here in Manhattan. And I also lead uh, the agency's policy work in education and disabilities. Um, thanks for joining us today. We are super psyched um, to have Celia Green with us, and we'll leave it to Celia to tell you about herself, but I do want to say uh, how grateful we are to have her here with us um, to talk about um, her activism, her advocacy, uh, being a mother to many kids and many kids <laughs> with disabilities, um, and... Uh, you know, looking forward to this. Celia, thank you so much for being here. Thank um, you for inviting <laughs> me. I am so happy to be here. I, um, I'm i just glad to get the right place and the right time and the right people. It always feels good to be here. Yeah, yeah, truth. So Celia, uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I am a mom, first and foremost. I have six young men, uh, four of them who are on the spectrum of autism. How old are you? Uh, oh, it's a range. <laughs> my youngest is 14 now, and my oldest is 31. So it's a it's a good little range. But uh, when I had my, my eldest that has autism is 28, and it has been a journey from then on. <laughs> <laughs> then on, I tell you. So, um, like I said, I'm happy to be here. I wear many hats. I am currently the acting president for the Citywide Council on High Schools, as well as being the first vice president and the uh, Brooklyn Borough Representative. I have also spent like four years prior to this on the Citywide Council for District 75, um, where I advocated a lot and I am on CPAC, the Chancellor's Parent Advisory Council, as the, the corresponding secretary. Well, Celia, you're a real underachiever, and it seems like you're pretty <laughs> bored. Um, <laughs> let's go back to, to your kids for a second, if you mm -hmm. don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, so their age ranges are from 14 to 31. Um, you have a 28-year-old son with autism, mm -hmm. and um, your youngest child, who's 14, yes. uh, mm -hmm. Does he have disabilities too? Yes. So my 28-year-old, my 19-year-old, my 17-year-old, and my 14-year-old are all on the spectrum. Um, my 28-year-old and my 19-year-old uh, are more profoundly autistic, uh, speech impaired, have other developmental disabilities, uh, cognitive issues, and so forth. My 17-year-old and my 14-year-old, not as much, but I do believe that it's because of advocacy. Um, and not because I went to someplace advocate, but because I knew as a mom what to push for. Because I always say that my 28-year-old was my training ground. Because it is a world like no other. Um, it, it breeds isolation with people when they first get a diagnosis for their child, whether it be autism or cerebral palsy or whatever. If you have never been in that world, if you've never taught in that world, if you've never been around anyone who had a disability... Uh, a lot of times you don't know what that looks like or what that feels like or how to move forward or how to best help your child. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, it's, it's been interesting. That's exactly where I was going and um, think that is still the case today in terms of when, uh, as parents, when we first 
uh, get to know who our kids are and start going mm -hmm. through the diagnostic process, going through the education evaluation process. It is one isolated place, right? So um, thinking about your eldest son, uh, who's 28, and you know, uh, thinking when he was you know, a toddler and, and what that diagnostic process was like in terms of uh, you know, having him evaluated through the city and systems and what it was like then compared to what it is like now for parents. I will say this. I, I when he was born, there was one in every, I think one in every 10,000 births that was an autistic child or a child diagnosed with autism. Uh, one, by the time I had the 19 year old, it was one in every, one in every 500 kids. So that was like a drastic shift. Um, and one in every 500 is actually what the CDC uses to decide something's an epidemic or not. But, um, very then, important point. By the time I had the 17 year old, it was one in, I don't know, one in 125, something like that. And the 14-year-old, it was one in 88. Yep. So it's it's been dramatic, dramatically changing, you know, in terms of numbers. And part of it is because there's better diagnosis now. There's more diagnosis. Um, more people are willing to have their children, you know, go through an evaluation and, and the effort of that. Um, but I also know that even now, there are quite a few times where everyone's not expected to know everything, but there are a lot of pediatricians who will say, oh, well, you don't want to label your child, or, oh, Johnny's just a little slow, or he's, you know, he's not talking, he'll be talking soon, and, you know, because I remember with my first, uh, the pediatrician, who was a female, by the way, and I picked a female because I figured, oh, you're a more motherly person, and you'll be more in tune with kids. She told me in those uncertain terms, oh, well, kids develop at their own rate. You're a nervous Nelly. It's your first child. You know, give it six months. Six months turned into six months to six months and another six months. It took two years for her to decide to finally give me a referral. In the meantime, thank goodness, I listened to my mother's intuition. I listened to my gut. I've always been a person that listens to my gut. And I said, this is not right. If you were speaking in sentences and you stopped, something's wrong. Either you went deaf or something else happened. So I took him, my mom at that time worked for Columbia when she was alive. And I took him to every single person at Columbia that would listen to me and my insurance would take, it would take my insurance, I should say. So I would take him, um, you know, to the audiologist first because I thought he'd be blind. I took him to a child behaviors, which I didn't even know existed <laughs> until then. <laughs> Um, I took him to, finally I took him to a neurologist, and that's how I got the diagnosis. I mean, nowadays there are, are clinics that tend to specialize in diagnosing kids um, at different stages, but I am still, it gives me pause when I hear parents come and say that they've experienced the same thing, and they're not talking about a 28-year-old, they're talking about their 5-year-old, or they're talking about a 3-year-old, you know, that they're in the midst of this process with. You know, and pediatricians are still saying the same thing that my pediatrician said or something similar. You know, um, I've actually had another mom tell me that her pediatrician said to her that, you know, you don't want those kids to beat your children kind of thing. Like, don't label him because he'll get put in that bad class or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We still hear a lot about that today in terms of people, um, you know, not having a... a 
better understanding of disabilities and classrooms and settings and naturally as parents and as humans fear plays in and we can't help but compare but another story for another mm -hmm. day so your eldest um seems like he was how old at the time that you got the diagnosis three he was about he was initially around two like 18 months, two years when I first took him to the lady. So he was four when he actually got. And, you know, because finally someone had said, you know, apart from taking him for services at Columbia and, and whatnot, I finally had someone say to me, well, you know, you could put him in therapeutic nursery. And so, so I was like, well, what's that? Yeah. And yeah. when I went to do the intake for Lamb Institute, which used to be run by Long College Hospital, so um, you lived in Brooklyn at the time? Yes, I still live in Brooklyn, actually. What? Woo! <laughs> Brooklynite all the way. <laughs> so, you know, um, when I went for Lamb Institute, the guy that was doing the intake had a real master of knowledge of a special needs for some reason. And he said to me, he said, you know, while you're waiting for the evaluation, it takes about a year and stuff, but in the meantime... You could be getting all these services from therapeutic nurseries. So he asked, well, how do I, you know, he asked me what district I lived in. I didn't even know that, obviously, but I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> so he asked me for my address. He actually helped me call um, and get, you know, the right DOE office and stuff that would service, you know, my district and told me what to write <laughs> and how to ask and to ask for, you know, ask for my son to be evaluated. Um, because I do think he's going to be in need, especially um, need services. And I did exactly that, and it went from there. And I was lucky enough that when I had the first placement meeting, I got a, um, a parent member who was really vocal, who had two children with multiple disabilities, and definitely talked my ear off, and I'm happy for it now, <laughs> because all of the things that they said were exactly the things and the protocols that you needed to follow. It's a lot to take in, though, when it's your first meeting, but it it was wonderful. It was really wonderful because it gave me that little heads up, you know, and I, I think part of it is I wanted to repay that, you know, because since then, I think in all the years and all the IEPs, I've had maybe three parent members that actually really said anything and really asked questions. You mean at meetings that you went to for your children? To, for my children, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. really were conscientious about what they were doing, and um, it made me want to make sure that more parents knew their rights and knew how to navigate the system, and that's how I really got into advocacy. Very cool. So I think mm -hmm. uh, we're hearing that um, you knew early on from your own personal experiences that you wanted to help others based on your experiences. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, just want to spend a couple more minutes talking about your eldest and mm -hmm. what the culture was like um, back then as he transitioned to school age and kindergarten in your neighborhood schools. And um, if you could speak also for a minute, connecting, I, I know that you grew up, you went to school in, in, in the city back in the day. We won't mm -hmm. quantify, so yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, what it was like for you culturally based on your background. Um, did you go to school with kids with disabilities and I ask this because I think that shapes us as parents and especially when we're experiencing this for the first time we have to have those hard 
conversations with ourselves on our own beliefs and that's not easy so if you could talk about that for a minute well funny enough I find that um, I will say the school that probably prepared me the most for people with disabilities was South Shore because I went to South Shore High School when it was one school um, it was an accessible building so did you know did that have, at the time yeah at the time I knew there were kids with disabilities in the various classrooms and whatnot but the thing is that they tended to keep the kids with disabilities in the same classroom. Boy, regardless of changed. whether or not they were cognitively in that range, you know, um, which was not a good thing and it's still not a good practice. It's it's better for everyone. Everyone has their own little niche and their own little thing and their own little assets. So right. you just have to find what those are. Um, and I, I truly believe in that, you know, in having neurodiversity in schools, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how you became uh, curious and impassioned um, <laughs> and wondering uh, what the history is behind you getting more involved. And what I mean is, uh, you know, for myself, based on uh, parenting my son, I didn't choose to get more involved on the school level, but chose to get involved on a systemic level mm -hmm. by uh, becoming a member of the Citywide Council on Special Ed, you similarly to the District 75. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you became involved on a wider scale than just your own kid. I think what really caused me to initially become do this on a wider scale is that I was at my son's school, um, which at the time had self-contained. I actually love this school still because it's still part of it's there, there is still a D75 program in this particular school, even though the uh, administrators have moved on, they retired or whatever. Um, but at the time there were not a whole lot of schools that wanted to do inclusion or wanted to have our classrooms, meaning D75 classrooms in their buildings. And when I got a choice of this particular school, one of the things I liked is, unlike all the other schools I had seen, and I would seen quite a few, they weren't, all the D75 classes weren't on one floor by themselves. So they weren't either in the attic, so to speak, which is usually fifth, sixth floor, or they weren't in the basement, you know, and never seeing sunlight. <laughs> um, they were not only, they were interspersed throughout the floors of the school, at the time and they weren't even near each other it was like you know um they were next to the gen ed class or and that was funny enough one of the first principals in that particular district that decided to do full-out inclusion to try full-out inclusion with our d75 kids Amazing. you know to agree to do that because of that particular district i think there were only two principals that said yes to try and make that 13 is a district that has quite a few schools so for you know, for most yeah, of them to totally. say no at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was a thing. Totally. But it was one of the ladies that was there at, for working for the SBST at the time, the school-based support team is what they used to call it back then. It's the IEP team. Um, she, um, she was the she was social worker. Social worker. Yeah. She was social worker, and she said to me, "Oh, you know, you would make a great parent member." So I was like, well, what's the parent member? And she told me, and she actually referred me. And at that point, they used to do like a generalized training. Um, it was a three-week training. 
And I went and I did that. Three weeks. Yeah, it was three weeks. You had to do homework, you had to write back and whatnot. But it's really good. It was really, it, it taught me a lot about um, the I, law in yeah. terms of IEPs. You yeah. know, so even if that wasn't the intention, it did, you know, teach me that. So, so I, was, I was happy for that. So yeah. I wanted to do that for other people because I also knew that there were a lot of people that weren't getting that kind of information. You know, and if I can help other people, like, once you get things that your kid needs, kids thrive. All kids thrive if they get the right things. It's just to find out what is specific to that kid or what things are good for that particular child. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, um, do you just, can you spend one minute talking about the role of parent members from your perspective? Because I think we'll have some people listening that won't know what we're talking about. Okay. I think the name is a little misleading because they call it a parent member, so it could be a, mean a lot of different things. Agreed. But it really is as a person who is there as a support person. They're at the IEP meetings. They're at the IEP meetings. Um, you know, they do have to go through fingerprinting and all of that, but they are at your IEP meeting. There is a confidentiality clause, so they don't talk about um, the meetings or the contents or the child that they, or the family they've helped. But they do, you know, support the parent. Um, they don't make decisions for them. I always tell people, we don't make decisions for you, but we can help you if you don't understand the offerings. A lot of times in IEP meetings, in placement meetings, people are, there's a bunch of people around the table. There are, most of them are DOA employees or subcontractors they're in. Most of them are um, speaking in jargon. So there, there may be a speech therapist, uh, um, an OT, an occupational therapist, a PT, a physical therapist. There could be a psychologist, a counselor of some sort that's at the table as well, depending on what your child's diagnosis is. And it can be intimidating for a parent when it's just them or just them and their significant other, you know, um, not knowing, you know, not knowing the jargon, not understanding, that's but right. not feeling comfortable enough to say, well, I really don't get this. Can we slow down or can we, you know, can you explain it a little bit better to me? A lot of people are afraid of seeming as though they're not knowledgeable, but it's, it's okay because everybody doesn't know everything. That's right. It's a vast you know? world. Our and it's world. a real vast world. And ever changing. You know, at least as me as a, a support person, I feel that if I see people glaze over like deers in the, in the headlights, I always say, you know, can we take a five minute break, you know, or, and, you know, I ask them if they understand the different things that are being offered to them. Because sometimes it's just that they don't understand it. And when you explain it or you explain what something is or something does, sometimes parents get a little more, you know, it, it calms them. That's right. You know, and they're able to think a little bit more about, well, what do I need for my child and what, you know, how can I design this to help my child best? Totally. And um, mm -hmm. there's great value in parents um, speaking with other parents because like mm -hmm. you said uh, there isn't the same dynamics mm -hmm. that happens um, when talking with professionals. Um, I do this for a living mm -hmm. and I still have a hard time at my kids IEP meetings because it's emotional okay. and there's lots of fear and there's unknown and it's you know figuring out your goals and communicating with your partner at the meeting. There's all these different layers um, and 
you know, also the energy and the pretense that you may have to fight, which can be overwhelming. So our, our city's lucky to have you as a parent member. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, funny enough, that lends to culturally. Sometimes people yes. don't feel yes. that they can. They feel it's disrespectful because in their culture, teachers are revered. And if the that's teacher right. says something, that's it. There's like no doctors. questioning. Yeah. There's no anything else. Or, yeah, you're right. Like doctors as well. And that's why some kids go underdiagnosed as well, or underdiagnosed yeah, and in occasion. So. Totally. You do have that generational piece that plays into it mm -hmm. as well, right? We have lots of mm -hmm. young parents at IEP meetings, and those dynamics play in mm -hmm. um, for sure. So a um, couple of questions. Uh, <clears throat> you know, here at Include NYC, we talk a lot about inclusion and, you know, um, what that looks like and inclusion can look different for everyone, but you know, bottom line is that all people, all young people have the mm -hmm. right to be included and what does that look like? Um, and so, you know, we hear a lot these days with the Department of Education and initiatives and um, under the current political climate about diversity and inclusion and, um, you know, recently know that you have been selected to be part of a advisory group that the Department of Education has put together on diversity with many different people. And wondering, in, in your own opinion, um, you know, what is diversity? What is inclusion? What is the relationship of those two? And what is inclusion? You know, where do you want to see the system go? With I actually want to see the system go very much towards inclusion because when I even say that my kids are in inclusion, my younger two are in inclusion, they're very high functioning and they... When you say you know, inclusion, what do you mean? They are in um, gen ed settings all day, every, every day that they go to school. They're in a gen ed setting. They have, one of them has a 0.5 para as opposed to a one-to-one -one So they share a para or they only have half the share half the time. Um, one of them doesn't actually have a pair at all at this point because he's congratulations. That. Thank you. <laughs> um, but they are, like I said, they're with their typically developing peers all day, and they are expected to either keep up or there are certain modifications that are made because they still get sets. Are they um, but in they District Seventy Five inclusion programs? They're in District Seventy Five. Okay. But it's in a gen ed. Okay. It's so District Seventy Five inclusion programs in my opinion, and we've talked about this before, is something that the world needs to know more about. It's like mm -hmm. this hidden um, place on the continuum of environments in which special ed supports and services can be provided. And, you know, District 75 inclusion, say something about it. Okay. One. My kids seem to usually be the guinea pigs for anything <laughs> for some reason. That's because but my eldest, for change, yeah, really. for the tw my twenty-eight-year-old was one of the first kids that was ever in inclusion um, in a seventy-five setting and stuff. And it was more of a, and it still is, more of a bottom-up thing where a principal who is a D seventy-five principal will say to a principal in the building in which they are housed. So these are buildings in which there's co-located programs. yes. Because can D75 inclusion programs exist in buildings that don't have community schools? Right. Mm -hmm. They can't, correct? Well, there has to be a community school, less yeah, restrictive be, settings. Yes, there has to be a, a district school that's okay. in there, another district school. And 
thank God for District 13. <laughs> I have to say that. And the willingness That's my home to district. Do, the willingness to do inclusion, um, because every district was not willing to do that. I live um, my actual, I live actually in 18, um, but I am close to schools in 18 and 17 and, and 22. And there was not the same opportunity in those particular districts, even for self-contained units at one point. There was not even that opportunity at one point. But that being said, I'm happy that there's inclusion. My problem is that there are not a whole lot of school personnel outside of, like, let's say, District 13 or District 15, in which it happens, or even like a District 1 or 2 in Manhattan, that know that it exists. So if, you go, if I go with a parent to the Bronx for an IEP, and this has happened, um, they will say to them, oh, well, there's no such thing as, as inclusion in 75. You must mean ICT. No, I don't mean ICT. I know the difference. An ICT class I'm happy for, and I think they should have more of the ICT classes, especially in elementary and middle school, because I think a whole lot of kids that sort of struggle, um, and I do mean struggle, would at least be able to be getting services at the same time because with ICC settings, there's always that special ed teacher in the classroom along with the gen ed teacher. So I think a whole lot more of the children would, would benefit from that. But that being said, ICT is not the same as having inclusion, having D75 inclusion where you're in that all day, you know, with your typically developing peers and you are trying to keep up with the work that they're doing. Um, in some cases, some of our kids do better academically. They may have other social issues or other behavioral issues or something like that that play into, you know, why they get services. But I, I truly believe if you want to change things, we will never change things unless we all are together at the same table. So unless we have our kids in the same buildings, you know, and going to lunch together and going to travel together. You know, the, the, the school that my younger two are in is really good. They're really in the same school? Yes. Cool. Really good. It's a 6 to 12 school, actually. It's in District 13. And the one thing I will say about the principal for the Gen Ed school itself is that if the kids for any given class are going somewhere, the 75 kids are going to. There's no distinction made. Oh, well, those kids aren't going, or they're a different liability, or... They do things together. They Celia, do things together. that's an anomaly, right? And um, I say this with both my parent and professional hat on, that one of my biggest hopes for the system is that the Department of Education creates expectations um, for schools to do more inclusive activities such as this because there's educational benefits for all kids, not just our kids with IEPs. So my rhetorical question to you is, how does this happen? And, and I'm going to ask you to pause for one second mm -hmm. because, you know, I look at the way that schools are held accountable with quality reviews, with results of learning surveys from parent perspective, student perspective, um, school staff, and there are no um, tools that measure the extent in which disabled students are integrated with non-disabled peers. So unless you have an administration uh, like the 
school that both of your kids are in who do that on their own because they value that and that's the culture and that's the sensibility how do we make that happen me and you but you we, know we push this. how I, do we I do it say this i've had at least uh in 75 i've had at least three different principles one is actually going to retire right now um but i've had three different principles and i will say this uh all three have been really good at understanding that kids are just kids our kids are kids that they need to be in the same settings with everyone else. Because you're, like I said, you're never gonna change the system unless everybody's sitting at the table together. Because the things that the adults, and I think it's more the adults than it is the children, the things that the adults worry about, the children don't. My oldest is mostly nonverbal. You know, even if he was blessed with perfect speech, he'd be the strong, silent type because it's just, just his personality. <laughs> and that's the truth, it drives me crazy sometimes, but it's just his personality. So, but I remember like his first inclusion class and him being you know, maybe like five or something or six and the, the teacher had all the kids lined up in the hallway, you know, you get your buddy and kind of thing. And the other little boy was like, oh, well, he's my buddy. He just doesn't talk. You know, it's like, it didn't bother them. It really doesn't bother them. My son went on to go to when he, cause there was no, um, there was a middle school, but there wasn't a high school with that particular organization at the time. So he went on to another high school, another D75 though, that had the opportunity to, and just happened to open um, an inclusion program at Maxwell High School at a time when I will tell you it was tumultuous at, at Maxwell because about six of the local high schools had closed and they had you know, imported a lot of those kids into Maxwell at the time, which is a CTU school that still exists in Brooklyn. Um, and they had just gotten scanners, and it was a whole other thing. So, you know, as a parent, you're going, and your kid is nonverbal and autistic and that takes courage, whatever so, um, other stuff. And it's like, okay, and you're going into this school with all these big kids. <laughs> what happens? And you believe me, the kids rise to the occasion. They would defend him. It was amazing. It's like these big, burly football players, like, just got it. Yeah. They were like, okay, well, this is my, you know, this is my friend and whatnot. Everybody learned differently. And some of the teachers actually had to come back and say, you know, he hands in his homework all the time. A lot of these kids don't. So it's like, I wish I could have flown him. Yeah. So it, it, it's amazing. If you give somebody the opportunity, that's it. it's, it's a, a lot of that is about opportunity. And that's why I think equity leads to diversity. If you have the equity, if you've got that opportunity to really do something and people expect stuff of you and they don't judge you beforehand, it's an incredible thing. It's an incredible, I find that the kids, I think that's also why I went out to high school because kids are just so incredible in terms of their resiliency and their stamina and their strength and, and starting to advocate for themselves. At least the high schoolers are starting to advocate for themselves. So I always want to promote that. and. Oh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So I know we don't have a lot of time left. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> we've talked about a lot. Um, wondering uh, what you, what key advice you have for a parent of a child who's first arriving to our world, world. Uh, based on your experiences, oh, Name the thing you think is most valuable for them to know. A couple in. of things. Accurate information. Where can you get accurate information? A group like Include NYC is a perfect example Excellent. of how to get accurate information because 
and and there's support groups with it. You have a support group every Tuesday. It is parents. There are other parents that are going through this, and you realize that when you get here. So it's it it helps you because sometimes you just need to be able to say the things that you cannot necessarily say to your family and friends because they're not living. They're not on the same road. It's not the same journey. That's right. And, and it's not, not that they don't love you and it's not that they don't respect you it's just they're not living it and sometimes you just need to be able to you know to rant to rave to do whatever and not necessarily judge for it have someone understand what is going on you know and i think that's one of those things that keeps you grounded but i do think accurate information helps because if you don't know your rights and you don't know um your child's rights in terms of education law and, and or not it is, it's a daunting, it's an even more daunting battle, because it's already a battle. But it's a more daunting place if you have no, you know, if you're coming with very little to defend yourself and everybody else has all the armaments on the other side. That's right, that's so. right. Um, okay, one last question. Uh, so right now you're on the Citywide Council for High School and mm -hmm. uh, they advise on policies and practices uh, related to students in high schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, prior to that, you were involved with the Citywide Council on District 75. Mm -hmm. um, what is your hopes as a member of the CCHS for the intersection of students with disabilities in high schools? What, well, what do you I want to see most? We did not, people, I, I don't know, with, with education councils, it's funny. There are a lot of people that have children with IEPs, but a lot of people won't tell you that they have children with IEPs. So, that being said, I found we did not have a whole lot of representation for children with disabilities. I tend to be one of the few people, and I've, I'm lucky in that I have some of my former D75 colleagues and some other colleagues on other councils who also have children with disabilities and would go to meetings and would always bring it up because if you're not ever at the table and you're not discussing things, people don't think of it because again, not their journey. That's right. <laughs> so it's not even that so they're trying to be dismissive, but it's it's not their journey, so they don't worry about it and stuff. I actually got a thing recently on accessibility in high schools and how accessible some of the buildings are. Physically, I mean. Physically. Correct. Yeah. And it's a shame. They're really not that many accessible buildings. Mm -hmm. And if they are accessible, for some reason, everybody's accessible on the first floor. That's right. That's not true accessibility. Yeah. If you're going to the fourth floor to a high school, what happens? That's right. That's right. You mm -hmm. know, so I, I, it's even come up to the point where it's not necessarily always the child. I've actually had parents who have either like a large wheelchair or a scooter or something. Can I get in your building? So I've had one mom where the teacher had to agree to come out at a certain time to talk for her for five minutes on the sidewalk. She just could not get in the building. It was old enough a building. It was a landmark building. They weren't going to change it anytime soon. Well, why not just get a ramp to use for that? I mean, I hate to say the obvious, but I mean, so these are the kinds of things Thanks. that we, you know, uh, as an advocacy community are, are pushing for. Um, Celia... So great to know you, um, and, and happy for all the work that you do, and um, want to say thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here. I was so glad to meet you. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> I really you. am, you know, and I am so glad that people are passionate about doing this work, because you it really can, oh, it's, it can really take a lot out of you to do this, 
and it's not like it's a you know this especially with the education council people there is no real pay in it so it is it's volunteer work yeah it's and I'm an glad you pointed that out it's an unpaid job because trust me if you do it well it is a job that's right <laughs> it is like a 16 hour gig that you're not going to get paid for that's right it really is and you so. know um I would be remiss if I didn't disclose that there's been plenty of times in my short journey uh, here, uh, you know, seven years, that I think to myself, what am I doing? I should only focus on my kid because things feel uh, like they move very slowly. Um, and I say all that because I think both of us similarly um, are fortunate to have the kids we have. And uh, very early on, somebody said to me, you know, uh, you found Jack and Jack found you. And it, and it is very, yeah. very, very <laughs> true. And, you know, what motivates me the most is the love and the positive experiences I've had parenting him. And I hear that from you with your oh, yeah. kids. And I, I feel like um, we're, we're, uh, we're fortunate to yeah. have those experiences. And I think that's within reach for everyone if we continue chipping away at the system mm -hmm. and um, you know pushing for cultural changes and by you showing up to all these meetings and being involved in coalitions and councils and modeling is a way for us to do that and so I uh, appreciate doing this with you. And, Thank you. Um, enough so mushiness happy. for today. <laughs> <laughs> I well, think that's a wrap. I, th I think if they take away anything though neurodiversity has to be a thing that people are thinking about. When they're thinking about classrooms and they're thinking about schools and whatnot, schools should be thinking about neurodiversity. Yeah, I mean, and I urge you to use that term whenever you can because that bridges inclusion with diversity. Um, mm -hmm. Because to me, you know, um, with this big diversity initiative going on in the Department of Ed, it's focusing on um, enrollment processes and admission um, in high schools uh, of different subgroups, so to increase the number of ELL kids, to increase the number of kids with IEPs in high schools, but what we're not looking at is to what, so if those kids are now, if we have more kids from those subgroups at those schools, how are they being included and to what extent? And we also need to focus on diversity and inclusion for younger kids and mm -hmm. set up mechanisms for things that you had mentioned before to happen and, th and that it's required of schools to, you know, have library uh, sessions with kids from the community school in one building with the kids from District 75, mm -hmm. you know, have uh, assemblies, have uh, gym, art class, music. All of these things contribute to the independence of kids. And I think with some of that, the best practices also. Yeah, because, totally. Uh, like, I, I was fortunate enough to get a program, you know, first shot out that really did have inclusion and really was talking about including, you know, our kids. And that doesn't happen for everybody. There are still pockets of resistance because people don't understand or they fear or... That's right. Whatever it is. And I find, like I said, it comes more from the adults than it does from the kids. I, I the totally kids are agree. adaptable. And also, that was the culture, long-standing yes. and historically in the Department mm -hmm. of Ed, that if a school felt they couldn't educate a kid, they could kick back that kid to the borough enrollment officer who would then find a placement. For them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since the reform initiative started here, which is no longer initiatives the way it is, you know, uh, eight years ago, we're still feeling that, that big... Um, 
cultural change. I, I do think it's gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. That's All right, rock on. Thank you, Celia. Thank you.